นโมทัสสะกวาดโอรหัตโอสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาดโอรหัตโอสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาดโอรหัตโอสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังนามังสังฆังนามะสังฆ This being the first Sunday of the month, it's the occasion when I like to pick up the Dhamma quote that's on the page of our Forest Sangha calendar for this month and lead us all in a contemplation on this. Teaching, and once again, this is a verse from an extract of translated teachings of Ajahn Chah, and accompanied by what I think is a very fitting photo of the community here, down at Harnam Lake. There, moving boulders around, and Ajahn Chah is talking about well, what he says is that our way of training and Maturing the mind involves going against the grain. We have to be willing to counter habitual tendencies of mind, ready to endure and put forth effort. And uh, certainly, uh, the people down by the lake that day were putting forth a lot of effort. It was uh, well; those boulders down there, I think, they're glacial boulders, and they're not. Nice little bits of sandstone. They're seriously heavy, and I think it's a fitting uh, metaphor for the spirit of practice that Ajahn Chah is referring to in this teaching. And it is a very this is a classic Ajahn Chah way of talking. Um, probably for many of us, not the preferred aspect. I know when we were living with Ajahn Chah, uh, we used to all get excited when he would come out with really nice. Profound things, but a lot of the time he was actually going on about countering the habitual tendencies of mind and enduring and putting forth effort. In fact, that's uh, that was the norm, and it's important to understand that when teachings are given like this from somebody like that, this is not some sort of Idealistic promotion of a fixed position. Ajahn Chah didn't do fixed positions. What he was offering, over and over again, in various ways, but always with kindness, always with patience, was the encouragement to orient all of our being towards the goal. That there is a goal in practice. This is not. Just a matter of believing and and putting forth effort, or countering our tendencies, or or being willing to go against the grain. Yeah. Yeah. These are, if you like, skillful means. What the Buddha called upaya, and and it's really important that when we take on teachings like this, or I know many of you are here on retreat at the moment. That as we Invest our time and energy in our commitment to practice, that we are rightly oriented towards the goal and not getting lost in the skillful means. Sometimes 
the obstructions or the apparent obstructions in our minds uh, can be, they can look really intransigent. Uh, or the tempting distractions can look really interesting. And it's not difficult to get lost. What helps protect us from getting lost is if we're rightly oriented towards the goal. And so I think in this particular teaching that Ajahn Chah gave the hint about this is where he says that we need to counter the habitual tendencies of mind. He was always talking about don't get lost in the moods. Moods you like, moods you don't like, all moods are moods. Don't get lost to them. All the moods are activity of the mind, but what is the mind itself? All moods are activity within awareness, but what is awareness itself? All thoughts, feelings, sounds, taste, touches and mental impressions are all the specks of dust floating around in what? What is it that all these conditions are arising and ceasing in? It's the knowing, it's the awareness. And the realisation of the refuge of the Buddha, that's why we lift up the Buddha as our refuge. The Buddha is this awareness. For awakened beings, this awareness, this knowing, this consciousness is pristine and present and evident, whereby whatever conditions might arise in their consciousness, in their awareness, in their hearts, they're not distracted, they're not lost. This morning, uh, as we do in our community, after breakfast, we have a reading from some of the translated teachings of Ajahn Chah, and this morning it was a section of instruction Ajahn Chah was giving to a woman who was dying, and he was encouraging her in skillful means for how to let go of everything, how to let go of all the tendencies, all the memories, all the fantasies, all the worries about what's going to happen to the kids when she dies, what she might have done in the past, to let go of all of the past, all of the future, all of the worries, all of the fears, to let go of everything and anything that arises until all that's left is the knowing, the refuge. Now, if we don't have knowing, if we don't have consciousness, we're unconscious. We're not really all here, literally. So we all have the knowing. We all have awareness. But is it conscious knowing? Do we know the knowing? Are we conscious in our awareness? Or is it not the case that most of the time we're caught up in the activity and awareness? So this is, I feel, what Ajahn Chah was consistently pointing to when he was saying the willingness to counter the habitual tendencies of mind. The countering these habitual tendencies of mind is not because there's anything wrong with the habitual tendencies of mind. The habitual tendencies of mind are just so. Uh, They just are what they are. And as the Buddha said, they're all a Nietzsche Dukkha Anatta. The classic Theravadan emphasis on the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not-self-nature of all conditions, the agreeable, disagreeable conditions, anything that arises or ceases in consciousness, anything that moves, anything that's born, is impermanent. It's unsatisfactory, not self Now, why did the Buddha and all the teachers emphasize these characteristics? Again, not as some sort of a judgment about them, but because this helps us let go of our clinging 
Right? So it gets always the case that the clinging is the source of the problem. It's not life that's the problem. It's not the conditions that's the problem. The Buddha was conscious. The Buddha had feelings. The Buddha had senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and cognizing. Found some conditions agreeable, some conditions disagreeable. But the Buddha never got lost because the Buddha was identified as that in which all of these conditions were arising and ceasing. So not getting caught up in the waves of the ocean, but being the ocean itself. Not getting caught up in the activity of the heart, but being the heart itself. So wherever, whenever we hear these teachings about going against our habits, enduring, putting forth effort, to take a lot of care, to be very, very sensitive and how we interpret that. Not picking it up in, in some sort of way whereby we judge the conditions. Yeah. Our habits of mind, when we feed them, they become stronger. And our false identity as the habits, as the movement, as the suffering, becomes more compounded. So why do we counter them? We just withdraw energy from them. We don't feed them. Well, then they get weaker. Then it's easier to let go. And the good fortune we all have is that we live at a time when we still have teachings from those who have actually realized this for themselves. And this is tremendously, <coughs> tremendously precious. We're not speculating. There are people who have lived on this planet very recently who have known this for themselves and have taught from a place of understanding, from a place of realization. Even when, in uh, speaking about Ajahn Chah's case again, even when Ajahn Chah was losing his faculties and, and was uh, moving towards dying, actually, he, uh, he sometimes talked about the process, and, and that also was a tremendous gift uh, it was one occasion, at least, where he, he talked about how he was witnessing the way his, his brain was misfiring. Uh, you, you may have heard me talk about this before. I think it's a, a wonderful uh, teaching that he offered, and we're very fortunate to have heard it. Because not many people speak about these things, particularly at that stage of disintegration of the body. And, but he was saying how... He said, when I open my mouth, I know what I want to say is, Sumato, come here. But what I hear my mouth saying is, Anando, come here. The brain's not working. But he says, there's no suffering in that. The conditions, the tendencies are haywire. You know, the wires are crossed, misfiring. Things are going in the wrong direction. But why is there no suffering? It's because the knowing is the space in which all these conditions arise and cease. And the knowing is the refuge. Making this knowing conscious is the goal. Yeah. Making this awareness, yeah, or as in the forest tradition, the teachers talk about the one who knows, is the Buddha. Making this one who knows conscious over and over and over again until we don't get fooled anymore by any of the conditions. Yeah. So once again, to say that this is not about struggling with the conditions. It's not about fighting the conditions. It's not about fighting ourselves. Sometimes 
the uh, spiritual teachings can sound like some sort of internal warfare. And uh, often the language of warfare is used in a metaphor for talking about the path of liberation. But again, we need to be very careful how we hear that. It's not pitting ourselves against ourselves. It's not about forcing conditions to be other than how they are. It's actually about receiving everything, about allowing everything to be exactly as it is. So the tendency to compulsively judge conditions as somehow failing us because we're feeling unhappy, well, I think that's probably, we all know what that feels like. And that's not when the teacher's talking about enduring and putting forth effort and a willingness to counter the habitual tendencies of mind. This is not fighting ourselves. Everything, including the sensation of resistance, and when we feel resistance, we don't have to become the resistor. We feel the struggle. Like maybe we, we get into a space of not knowing, which is pretty normal for all of us. I don't know what to do. Should I do this sort of practice? Should I do that sort of practice? Should I be sitting? Should I be walking? Should I practice loving kindness? Or should I contemplate death? Should I be more patient or should I just chuck it in and go and make a cup of tea? Yeah. What should I do? I don't know. That's the reality, often. Yeah. But isn't it the case that we struggle so much when we come across that I don't know what to do? Yeah. You find yourself in a position of public speaking. Yeah. I don't know what to say. What's the problem with not knowing? Or you're with somebody who's dying. Yeah, that's a, a really... Tremendous challenge. I don't know what to say. What's the problem with not knowing? The resistance to not knowing. That's the only problem. Actually, there's no problem to not knowing. Not knowing is the truth, actually, most of the time. You know, kind of fumbling along, kind of <laughs> trying to get by, hoping things don't turn out too bad. You know? <laughs> the problem is that when these conditions arise, that we haven't investigated, haven't learned to let go of, haven't learned to be at peace with, haven't learned to receive into awareness without judgment, is we struggle. So the pain of struggle, that also could be something to be received. No judgment. Whatever comes into awareness, how the question is how to receive it more fully, more accurately. Receive it into the knowing, receive it into awareness, receive it into the heart. You know, that's why religions often talk about open-heartedness it's the closed-heartedness that resists, that rejects, that judges, that doesn't have room for life. Now, sometimes people get a bit carried away with the emotions that might arise with a state of open-heartedness, but that's a bit of a, a side effect. Uh, there may well be all sorts of emotional activity take place as the heart opens, but uh, don't let that become a distraction. The heart does need to be open. Our awareness does need to be expanded to receive all of life, all aspects of our experience. And, and what is left when we've let go of these things that arise? And we learn we can let go of judgment. We can let go of 
some of our sadness, we can let go of some of our resentment. What's left with all the letting go? There's always the still, there's the knowing. There's the awareness, and that's the goal. And, and let's also remember that letting go is not something we do. Because, probably, I suspect, this is me speculating again, but I suspect probably throughout all the history of humanity, we haven't all been such control freaks as we are right now. Just really skilled at controlling. And we have such extraordinary affluence and education gives us so much information about life and so much affluence that we can focus our time and energy into getting what I want. And so I learn to become very pleased with my ability to control conditions. And we think it's normal because pretty well everybody else is doing it. We've been doing it for so long that the chances are we're going to take it into our spiritual life and we try to control ourselves into being liberated. Well, that's uh, almost certainly going to cause us a lot of difficulty. Mm. And it shows up when maybe we hear teachings, you read the teachings of great masters and they talk about letting go and letting go of everything. I think, well, how can I let go? As if it's something I'm going to do and I've got to do it, otherwise I'm not going to get myself liberated. Well, another way of considering this is to see letting go Liberation is what happens when we stop clinging. It's the clinging we want to be paying attention to. The habits of clinging, the habitual tendencies of mind. These tendencies of mind, the liking, the disliking, the wanting, the not wanting, feeling pleased with ourselves, feeling displeased with ourselves, finding life agreeable, finding it absolutely, utterly tedious and intolerable. All of these tendencies... The extremes and everything in between are just so in terms of reality. But in terms of our everyday experience, most of the time, most of us are clinging. So that's what we want to pay attention to. We really pay attention to see, this is what I'm doing. This struggle right now is a result of this that I'm doing. And if I can do it, the good news is, I don't have to do it. If I'm doing it, I could also not do it. I mean, if it was happening to me, that would be something else. But this is something I'm doing. I'm clinging to the sadness. I'm clinging to the resentment. I'm clinging to the disappointment. If we can get the feeling for how much we are responsible for that, then with that comes the understanding, the intuition that I can stop doing it. This is one of the very good reasons for Going on retreat, we get things a lot quieter, a lot simpler, slowing down, being still. Some tranquility arises, and in that tranquility, maybe you have the good fortune of catching one of these moments where something arises with a memory or a sound or a smell, some sort of impression, and you're just about to follow it, and you catch it. You don't have to do that. You don't have to move. You can simply know. You can know that the impression, the sight, the sound, the smell, the taste, the the mental impression, you can know that and also know that you have the choice 
to stay still and watch or to follow it. And when you get that perspective, when you arrive at that appreciation of the possibility of cultivation, it really strengthens faith. We don't have to do it letting go. We just have to stop doing the clinging. Then letting go will take care of itself. So also in this quote from Ajahn Chah, the... um, there was another magical word in there that willingness yeah. is worth focusing on. Yeah. The willingness to counter habitual tendencies of mind. Yeah. A willingness symbolizes agility. Yeah. And when there's rigidity, there's willfulness. That's different. Yeah. Rigid habits. But here we're talking about the willingness to counter habitual tendencies, the willingness, the agility of mind. Rigor mortis, once rigor mortis has set in, which for a lot of people by about the age of 40, people's habits become so rigid, you can't change them. We haven't been training in awareness. And by about 36, 40 onwards, rigor mortis starts to set in, psychologically speaking. And also, actually, it shows itself up in the body as well. Tensions in the body become fixed. And and the advantage of having a meditation, a regular meditation routine, uh, along with a regular exercise routine, means that when rigidity, willfulness manifests, we can see it and we can learn from it. Not, Not a matter of judging it and compounding it, but rather opening up and receiving it. Oh, I'm so pleased I saw that. So pleased I saw that moment of conceit. So pleased I saw that holding on to bitterness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So agility of mind, agility of body, the willingness to change course in our spiritual practice. We may have been doing some particular Uh, following some particular spiritual discipline for a while and it's not working anymore. Well, we don't want to change too quickly, but there might come a time when we question it and what comes up is the intuition was this is time to change. The willingness, agility, these, these factors, these spiritual factors... They nourish our spiritual practice. They allow us, they encourage us, they, they support our questioning. And even though we might be getting older, physically, we, rigor mortis is not setting in. We can encourage ourselves to dare to question. Daring to question is a, a really important nourishment of spiritual practice. I heard today that uh, Bishop Jenkins, the ex-Bishop of Durham, passed away today. And any of those who have heard of him, he got himself into a bit of trouble some years ago because he was daring to question some of the shared assumptions that the following had been hanging on to for a long while. And they came up with some unpleasant names for him. But I don't know that he was particularly bothered. He was a man who was interested in the spirit of the spiritual life, not just the forms. 
if we're just committed to the forms of spiritual practice, well, we, we can become kind of stale. And there's something similar in Ajahn Chah's life where somebody asked him, why, are you, why were you so different, Ajahn Chah? You know, there's tens of thousands of monks in Thailand, but you're different. What makes you different? And his reply was, because I was daring. Other people, they, don't, they weren't daring enough, but I was daring. So this daring to go against the habitual tendencies means that we can discover something new. If we just follow our habitual tendencies, they stay strong, and as the years go by, they actually become more and more difficult to let go of. So if we're willing to counter the habitual tendencies, then it may become easier to let go of. We, don't, we haven't invested so much of a sense of self in them. So what might this look like in terms of practice? And in everyday life, we, maybe we have a... A regular meditation practice going and we're used to sitting for 40 minutes say and think okay I'm going to sit 40 minutes we look at the clock and it's 10 past 8 so okay in 40 minutes I'll, I'll get up and, and go and do something else and, and, and then after about 25 minutes you know, knees are aching and the back is sore or sleepy maybe or just not getting anywhere this is just not this is just not fun. I'm not having a good meditation here. Yeah, so I think have a little look at the clock. I think, oh, 30 minutes. Oh, I don't know whether I want to uh, carry on another five minutes looking at the clock. Oh, I've had enough of this. I'm going to. But no, you set out to do 40 minutes. You said you were going to do 40 minutes. Yeah. Well, if we notice a tendency like that, yeah, being willing to counter the habitual tendencies of mind and body, we do 50 minutes. And now, it's important to understand, again, as I started off by saying, we're not giving ourselves a hard time. You know, really, this is not about uh, punishing or or browbeating or humiliating ourselves. Rather, it's recognising that that habitual tendency of not sticking with something we determined to do, particularly something as important as our formal practice, and that habitual tendency is if we have such a habit, we don't want to feed it. Yeah. We don't want to nourish the weeds. You know, if you've got a nice garden going, you don't want to feed the weeds. It's important that we learn to recognise these habitual tendencies as something that stay alive because we invest energy in them. Yeah. Habits, tendencies of self-promotion. You know, if you like to always um, catch yourself promoting yourself as being somebody special, you know, I'm not like everybody else, I'm more spiritual. Yeah. Any form of conceit that we're caught up in, any form of self-view, when we get caught up in it, it's painful. And so if we catch ourselves being you know, obnoxiously arrogant in how we promote ourselves, thinking we're special, thinking we're different, thinking we're better than other people, not getting lost in compulsive judging and rejecting it and collapsing around it and 
creating a problem by clinging even more to that conditioned energy, but countering it. And then, how can I be completely inconspicuous in this company? How can I be a nobody? Practice not, not saying anything about myself for the next two hours, or maybe two minutes if we've got a serious problem in that area. <laughs> Criticizing, complaining, there's another one. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, I read something about that recently, somebody who kind of made a determination not to criticize anything for five minutes and really had difficulty, uh, not to mention for five days. Uh, so going against these habitual tendencies. Now, it, it, can sound, it can sound like it's going in the wrong direction. It sounds like we're basically coming from a deluded sense of self and we're, we're just feeding that deluded sense of self. And, and if you, you know, want to be liberated, you've just got to let go of all sense of self. Well, that's, that's you know, understandable that we might have that thought, but it's like if you're climbing a ladder, you go one rung at a time. You don't just reach for the top rung of the ladder. Some of the Advaita Vedanta teachings come across as if you can climb the ladder from the top. But if you study what Sri Ramana Maharshi, one of the greatest Advaita Vedanta teachers, said, he was talking about saying, Dhamma Vichaya, investigation of Dhamma, that's the technique that's suitable for this age. Investigating the conditions that are happening here and now. What is this experience that I'm in the middle of right now? What is the reality of it? In his case, asking the question, who? Who is doing this? Investigating this reality, not judging it, not rejecting it, but finding that which gives us leverage, contemplating Anicca Dukkha, or in this case, Anatta, finding the leverage, which means we can lever ourselves out of our stuckness, to this false identity, whether it's conceited self-view or clinging to old sadness or clinging to fantasies around food. So it's clinging that's the issue. And so we counter these tendencies and, and it's a training. That's again, the verse started off, I say, our way of training involves... Some people don't like the word training and that's perhaps because they have their own memories of that word and maybe it was used in a particular context at some stage. But in this training, in this path of practice, the word training is, we can think of it as like, you know, if, you, if you're planting a crop and you want the water to go in a certain direction, you, you dig the ditches so you train the water to go in a helpful direction. You don't want the water just to go off somewhere in the opposite direction to where you've planted your seeds. You want the water to go into a helpful direction. And likewise, we want the heart energy to go into a direction that's helpful. It's not the case that we can just sit here and do nothing and get liberated, at least from the Buddha's perspective. And the Buddha was very clear about this. He said there are some conditions which conduce with letting go and some conditions which conduce with clinging. Some conditions are helpful and some conditions are unhelpful. That very famous short teaching that the Buddha gave, uh, known as the Awada Patimoka, where he said, refrain from doing that which is unhelpful. 
cultivate that which is helpful, purify the heart. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. It's something that's been passed down through all previous Buddhas as well as our Buddha. Refrain from doing that which is unhelpful, that which is hurtful to ourselves and others. Cultivate that which is not hurtful to ourselves and others, that which is wholesome, that which is skillful. And pari, sabba papasa akkaranang, kusalasa upasampada, satchita prayotapanang, etang buddhanasasanang. Now, if the Buddha wanted to say, kusalasa upasampada, sabba papasa akkaranang, he would have said that. And if he, would, if he wanted to start by saying, cultivate that which is wholesome, and then refrain from doing that which is unwholesome, he would have said so, but he didn't. What he actually said was, sabba papasa akkaranang. Kusalasa Upasampada. In other words, to start with restraint from those conditions which cause harm to ourselves and others. This restraining, this refraining, this countering our unwholesome, unskillful, habitual tendencies of mind. This is the beginning of practice. If we don't do that, it's like it's like cooking without washing your hands. You wouldn't want to go to a restaurant where somebody was cooking food with dirty hands, or, or like here in our kitchen. You know, if you've been down by the lake there and you're handling the fence and the gate, and there's all sorts of animals been rubbing against the gate post, and you put your hand on, you come here, and then you start preparing food for people, and not a good idea. <laughs> you wouldn't want to do that. You're going to prepare food, you're going to eat. You want to wash your hands first. And so it is with our spiritual practice. So the bottom line, the most basic training is to develop that skill to inhibit or to counter the habitual tendencies of mind, those things that take pull us down, those things that cause ourselves and others harm. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Sa <laughs>